Hello, my name is Michael Lodge, and I'm the Secretary General of the International Seabed Authority. It's a pleasure to contribute to the United Nations Audiovisual Library of International Law by providing this lecture on the legal regime for the deep seabed under Part 11 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. My talk today is organized into five segments, and I will clearly indicate where each segment begins and ends so that you can pause the video if you wish to take a break. In the first segment, I will talk briefly about the history of Part 11 of the Convention and the 1994 Implementation Agreement. Part 2 covers the legal status of the deep seabed and its resources. In Part 3, I will introduce the International Seabed Authority and talk about the different organs of the authority, the way in which they are structured, and how they function. In Part 4, I will discuss how the International Seabed Authority regulates activities in the deep seabed, specifically mineral exploration and exploitation. And then, in Part 5, I will discuss dispute settlement before making a few concluding remarks. It's not really possible to understand the ISA and the regime for deep seabed mining without saying something about the history of the negotiations at the third UN Conference for the Law of the Sea and the 1994 Implementation Agreement. In particular, it is important to bear in mind that the negotiations at UNCLOS III between 1973 and 1982 took place in a political atmosphere radically different to today's. There was profound disagreement over the existing international law on deep seabed mining. The conference essentially split into two sides. For the industrialized countries, deep seabed mining was a freedom of the high seas. The developing states, through the group of 77, took a more ideological approach, based on the new international economic order and their understanding of the 1970 Declaration of Principles by the UN General Assembly, which declared the deep seabed and its resources to be the common heritage of mankind. These ideological differences continued throughout the negotiations in the first committee, which dealt with deep seabed mining at UNCLOS III. However, to a certain extent, the discussions in the first committee took place in isolation from the discussions in the rest of the conference, which dealt with more traditional law of the sea matters, such as the exclusive economic zone regime, the outer limits of the continental shelf, archipelagic baselines, the regime of islands, and dispute settlement. The outcome was that the text of Part 11 and Annex 3 of the Convention, in attempting to give legal effect to the 1970 Declaration of Principles, became excessively complex, in some respects obscure, and did not fully satisfy any of the participants. Part 11 is in fact the longest part of the Convention, consisting of 58 out of its 320 articles, along with Annexes 3 and 4. From the outset, most of the industrialized states rejected Part 11 and refused to ratify the Convention. By November 1993, 11 years after the adoption of the Convention and on the eve of its entry into force, only one of the 60 states that had ratified or acceded to the Convention was not a developing country. Recognizing how disastrous it would be if the Convention were to enter into force without the participation of the industrialized states, 
The Secretary General of the United Nations, Javier Perez de Cuellar, started in 1991 to convene a series of informal consultations as a way of resolving the problems with respect to Part 11 prior to the inevitable entry into force of the Convention. Those consultations, under the guidance and leadership of the Secretary-General's Special Representative, Ambassador Satya N. Nandan of Fiji, culminated in the adoption by the UN General Assembly in July 1994 of the agreement relating to the implementation of Part 11 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which we will refer to simply as the 1994 Agreement. The 1994 Agreement is unique in international law. Whilst not expressly making any amendments to the Convention, it made radical changes to the legal regime set out in Part 11 and Annex 3. It did this in two main ways. First, by specifying that certain provisions of the Convention shall not apply, and second, by setting out understandings as to the way in which other provisions would be implemented. Most importantly, however, Article 2 of the 1994 Agreement provides that the provisions of the agreement and Part 11 of the Convention are to be interpreted and applied as a single instrument. In the event of any inconsistency between the agreement and Part 11, the provisions of the agreement prevail. Given the importance of ensuring, as soon as possible, universal participation in the single regime of the Convention and the 1994 Agreement, the 1994 Agreement also contained special provisions aimed at expediting entry into force. After the adoption of the 1994 Agreement, which took place on 28 July 1994, any ratification of or accession to the Convention also represents consent to be bound by the Agreement. Moreover, no state may establish its consent to be bound by the 1994 Agreement unless it has previously, or at the same time, become party to the Convention. With the adoption of the 1994 Agreement, the way was clear for the Convention to enter into force, which duly happened on the 16th of November 1994. On the same date, the inaugural session of the International Seabed Authority took place in Kingston, Jamaica. Since 1994, the number of states parties to the Convention has continued to increase, and as at the time of recording this lecture, stands at 168, including all the major maritime nations, with the exception of the United States, and the EU and all its member states. We will now go on to consider the legal status of the area and its resources under the Convention. The area is defined in Article 1, Paragraph 1 of the Law of the Sea Convention as the seabed and the ocean floor and the subsoil thereof beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. The regime of the area is therefore applicable to the seabed beyond the outer limits of the continental shelf established under Article 76 and Annex 2. It follows that the precise extent of the area cannot be determined until all coastal states have fixed the outer limits of their continental shelves in accordance with the provisions of the Convention. Under the Convention, the area and its resources are the common heritage of mankind. In fact, this common heritage status of the deep seabed had been established long before UNCLOS III started in the Declaration of Principles adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1970. Initially, 
This concept applied to all ocean space beyond national jurisdiction. In 1970, national jurisdiction extended to 12 nautical miles. By the time the convention was adopted in 1982, agreement that the exclusive economic zone extended to 200 nautical miles, as well as on the extent of the continental shelf, meant that the potential common heritage area had already been reduced by some 35%. Most of the principles outlined in the Declaration of Principles were simply repeated in Part 11 of the Convention. Whether the common heritage of mankind amounts to a principle or doctrine of international law has been the subject of much academic speculation since then, and even up until today, but is not very important in practice. What is important is to understand the provisions of the Convention that attempt to bring a degree of legal precision to the common heritage concept, which was lacking from the Declaration of Principles. These provisions also help to clarify the similarities and differences between the regime for the deep seabed under the Law of the Sea Convention and other global commons outside national jurisdiction, including, for example, the high seas, Antarctica, and outer space. As a result, the deep seabed has a special status that is neither race communis nor race nullius. The idea which underlies it is that certain interests of all humankind should be safeguarded through a special legal regime. Neither simple non-appropriation or common use would be sufficient. Instead, the overriding interest of all humanity in the preservation of the marine environment and in the rational and equitable development of natural resources would need to be recognized. This would need to be done in such a way that it did not disregard the interests of individual states, but recognized the fact that these interests could be protected only within the framework of a stable international regime of cooperation between states. Article 137, paragraph 1, provides that no state shall claim or exercise sovereignty or sovereign rights over any part of the area or its resources, nor shall any state or natural or juridical person appropriate any part thereof. Article 137, paragraph 2, vests all the rights in the resources of the area in mankind as a whole, and provides that these rights are to be exercised through the International Seabed Authority on behalf of mankind as a whole. Article 137, paragraph 2, prohibits the alienation of the resources of the seabed other than in accordance with the provisions of the Convention. Article 137, paragraph 3, further underlines the fact that no claim, acquisition, or exercise of rights with respect to minerals recovered from the seabed by any state, not just states' parties, or any natural or juridical person, shall be recognized other than in accordance with Part 11. It is very important to emphasize that the scope of the common heritage is explicitly limited to the resources of the area. For the purposes of Part 11, resources are defined as solid, liquid, or gaseous mineral resources in situ in the area at or beneath the seabed, including polymetallic nodules. This excludes living resources, including so-called marine genetic resources. Article 140 provides that activities in the area, which is essentially a term of art for deep seabed mining, shall be carried out for the benefit of mankind as a whole, irrespective 
of the geographical location of states, whether coastal or landlocked, and taken into particular consideration the interests and needs of developing states and of people who have not yet attained full independence or other self-governing status. To give effect to this aspiration, the authority is tasked with the development of a mechanism to provide for the equitable sharing, on a non-discriminatory basis, of financial and other economic benefits derived from deep seabed mining. Article 141 provides that the area shall be open to use exclusively for peaceful purposes by all states, whether coastal or landlocked. Article 141, as read with Article 301, is generally understood as prohibiting the use of the seabed for aggressive activities in the sense of Article 2 of the UN Charter. Finally, it is worth noting that the principle that the area and its resources are the common heritage of mankind was regarded as so fundamental that Article 311, Paragraph 6 of the Convention, prohibits states' parties from making any amendments to that basic principle or from becoming party to any agreement in derogation thereof. The Authority is one of three international institutions established by the Law of the Sea Convention, the others being the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and the Commission for the Limits of the Continental Shelf. Article 157 of the Convention provides that the Authority is the organization through which states' parties shall, in accordance with Part 11, organize and control activities in the area, particularly with a view to administering the resources of the area. The authority formally came into existence on the 16th of November 1994, the date of entry into force of the Convention, although it did not begin to function as an autonomous organization until 1996, when the first Secretary-General assumed office. The legal provisions relating to the powers and functions of the authority and its institutional structure are contained in Section 4 of Part 11, Articles 156 to 185, and in relevant provisions of the 1994 Agreement. The main function of the authority is to regulate deep seabed mining. However, it also has a number of ancillary functions, including promoting and encouraging marine scientific research concerning the area and its resources, and potentially even carrying out such research, promoting and encouraging the transfer to developing countries of technology and scientific knowledge relating to activities in the area, and promoting international cooperation regarding activities in the area and the progressive development of international law relating thereto. All states' parties to the Convention are ipso facto members of the authority. The main organs of the authority are an assembly composed of all the members, a council with limited membership, a secretariat headed by a secretary-general, and the enterprise. The latter will be discussed further later. There are also a number of important subsidiary bodies consisting of individual experts, including a legal and technical commission and a finance committee. One of the primary characteristics that distinguish the authority from other international organizations is the very careful balance that is struck between the powers and functions of its various organs, largely as a result of composition and decision-making rules for the Council and Finance Committee introduced as part of the 1994 Agreement. This means that many matters require sequential action 
by the Finance Committee, Legal and Technical Commission, Council and Assembly. The Assembly, as the sole organ consisting of all the members of the authority, is the supreme organ of the authority. It has power to establish general policies, as long as they are in conformity with the Convention and the 1994 Agreement, to elect the members of the Council, and to elect the Secretary-General from among the candidates proposed by the Council. In due time, the Assembly will also elect the Director-General and members of the Governing Board of the Enterprise. The Assembly also approves the budget of the Authority, including the scale of assessment for contributions to the budget, as submitted by the Council, and approves the rules, regulations and procedures relating to prospecting, exploration and exploitation in the area that have been provisionally adopted by the Council. Two important limitations on the powers of the Assembly were introduced by the 1994 Agreement. First, Decisions of the Assembly on any matter for which the Council also has competence, or on any administrative, budgetary, or financial matter, shall be based on the recommendations of the Council. If the Assembly does not accept the recommendation of the Council on any matter, it shall return the matter to the Council for further consideration. The Council is then bound to reconsider the matter in light of the views expressed by the Assembly. Second, decisions by either the Assembly or the Council having financial or budgetary implications shall be based on the recommendations of the Finance Committee. The Council is composed of 36 members divided into five groups A, B, C, D and E that form four decision-making chambers. Groups A, B, and C make up three voting chambers, and the developing states in groups D and E make up the fourth voting chamber. Members are elected for terms of four years, with elections for one half of the membership taking place every two years. The members are elected by the Assembly, but in the case of groups A, B, and C, and D, the Assembly is required to elect the members nominated by each of those groups. Group A, the largest consumers, comprises four members from among those states' parties which have either consumed or imported more than 2% in value terms of the total world consumption of the commodities produced from the categories of minerals to be derived from the area. Two important provisos were added by the 1994 agreement. First, Group A must include the state having the largest economy in terms of GDP on the date of entry into force of the Convention. That state is the United States, and this guaranteed seat on the Council was one of the red lines for the US during the negotiation of the 1994 Agreement. The second proviso is that Group A must include the Eastern European state with the largest GDP. At present, that is the Russian Federation. Group B the major investors, comprises four members from among the eight states' parties which have made the largest investments in deep seabed mining. Essentially, this was to protect the interests of the pioneer investors, but of course the composition of this group may change over time as more states invest in deep seabed mining. Group C, the land-based producers, 
comprises four members from among states' parties which are major net exporters of the categories of minerals to be derived from the area. This group must include at least two developing states. Group D comprises six members from among developing states' parties representing special interests, including small island developing states, landlocked states, least developed states, and states with large populations. Group E comprises 18 members elected according to the principle of ensuring an equitable geographical distribution of seats in the Council as a whole. The Council's role in the work of the Authority is extremely important. It is the executive organ of the Authority. Its primary function is to supervise and coordinate the implementation of Part 11 on all matters within the competence of the Authority. Whilst it must act in accordance with the general policies established by the Assembly, the Council has extensive powers over a range of matters set out in Article 162 of the Convention that are not subject to further action by the Assembly. Among the most important of these are the power to propose to the Assembly a list of candidates for the election of the Secretary-General, to approve plans of work for exploration and exploitation, to adopt rules, regulations and procedures relating to prospecting, exploration and exploitation, as well as the financial management and internal administration of the Authority, and to exercise control over activities in the area in accordance with the Convention. These powers are not absolute, however, but in many cases must be exercised in accordance with the recommendations of the Legal and Technical Commission or, in financial and budgetary matters, the Finance Committee. Decisions of substance in the Council require either consensus or a qualified majority vote. Consensus is required in the case of the matters specified in Article 161, Paragraph 8D of the Convention, including the adoption of rules, regulations and procedures, and amendments to Part 11. The 1994 Agreement also urges, as a general rule, that decision-making in all organs of the Authority should be by consensus. And in practice, this is what has happened. In the event that all efforts to reach consensus have been exhausted, decisions in the Council require a two-thirds majority of members present and voting, providing that such decisions are not opposed by a majority of any one of the four chambers. A further variation of this decision-making procedure applies in connection with the approval of plans of work for exploration or exploitation upon the recommendation of the Legal and Technical Commission. In this case, the 1994 Agreement added an additional limitation on the decision-making power of the Council. The Agreement states that the Council shall approve a recommendation for approval of a plan of work unless a two-thirds majority of members present and voting, including a majority of members present and voting in each chamber, decides to disapprove the plan of work. The practical effect of this provision is that as few as two members in any of groups A, B or C could force approval of a plan of work even if an overall two-thirds majority of the Council were to oppose it. The Legal and Technical Commission is one of two subsidiary bodies of the Council that are established by Article 163 of the Convention. The other is the Economic Planning Commission. 
The Legal and Technical Commission plays a vital role in the functioning of the authority, as it is the body that reviews all proposed plans of work for activities in the area and makes recommendations thereon to the Council. The Commission is also the body that is responsible for formulating and submitting to the Council the rules, regulations, and procedures of the authority relating to the conduct of activities in the area. In addition, the Commission has the general responsibility of supervising activities in the area and reporting to the Council. This includes making recommendations relating to environmental monitoring programs and the protection of the marine environment, recommending that emergency measures be taken to suspend operations to prevent serious harm to the marine environment, and recommending the institution of legal proceedings before the Seabed Disputes Chamber. It is fair to say, therefore, that most of the substantive matters that come before the Council, except for financial and budgetary matters, require prior consideration by the Legal and Technical Commission. Members of the Legal and Technical Commission are elected in their personal capacity and are required to have appropriate qualifications in fields such as exploration and exploitation and processing of minerals, oceanology, protection of the marine environment, or economic and legal matters. Although the Convention states that the Commission shall be composed of 15 members, it also states that the Council may decide to increase the size of the Commission, giving due regard to economy and efficiency. The Council has used this power to increase the size of the Commission to 22 in 1996, subsequently to 25 in 2011, and then to 30 in 2016. Meetings of the Legal and Technical Commission are normally held in private, generally because the Commission deals with confidential matters, including commercially sensitive data and information. There is, however, provision in the rules of procedure of the Commission for meetings to be opened to observers in certain specified cases, and when issues of general interest to members of the Authority, which do not involve the discussion of confidential information, are being discussed. The Convention did not provide for a Finance Committee, although it did include a provision requiring the Council to establish a subsidiary organ for the elaboration of draft financial rules. The issue was, however, taken up in the negotiations for the 1994 agreement, and it was considered necessary to provide in the agreement itself for the establishment of a 15-member Finance Committee. The Finance Committee is elected by the Assembly. In electing members, the Assembly is required to take due account of the need for equitable geographic representation and the representation of special interests. However, it is also required that each of groups A, B, C, and D of the Council are represented on the Committee. Furthermore, until such time as the Authority has enough funds of its own to fund its activities other than assessed contributions of members, the Finance Committee must include one representative from each of the largest contributors to the budget. The responsibilities of the Finance Committee are set out in Section 9 of the Annex to the 1994 Agreement. As well as making recommendations on the proposed budget of the Authority and assessing the contributions of members to the budget, the Finance Committee is also required to prepare draft 
financial rules, regulations, and procedures, including those relating to internal financial administration, as well as the equitable sharing of financial and other economic benefits derived from deep seabed mining. It does not, however, have a role in establishing the financial terms and conditions under which mining is to be conducted, which is a responsibility of the Legal and Technical Commission. This is not surprising, given that the role and expertise of the Finance Committee is geared towards internal financial control and the management of expenditures, rather than the determination of the financial terms of mining contracts. We'll now move on to discuss the enterprise. From the very beginning of discussions about how to realize the benefits of the common heritage of mankind, there was a fundamental divergence of views as to whether deep seabed mining would be carried out by private sector or state entities under some kind of licensing system with access controlled by a central licensing body or agency, or through an international entity specifically established to carry out mining on behalf of the international community. The industrialized countries wanted a simple licensing system under which any state, person, or company might apply for a license to an international agency on a first-come, first-served basis. The developing countries considered that the best way to implement the common heritage principle was through direct exploration and exploitation through an international organization in which they would be equal participants. The eventual compromise reached in 1976 was the so-called parallel system of access, whereby some mine sites would be reserved for exclusive access by developing countries through an international enterprise, whilst others would be freely available to states and private operators. Although this compromise quickly became accepted as the basis of the system for access to seabed minerals and is embodied in Article 153 of the Convention, discussions over the operational details of the enterprise, and in particular its financing and access to technology, were to remain controversial throughout UNCLOS III and the negotiation leading to the 1994 agreement. The enterprise is established by Article 170 and Annex IV of the Convention. It is described as the organ of the authority which shall carry out activities in the area directly, as well as the transporting, processing, and marketing of minerals from the area. It is autonomous in the conduct of its operations, which shall be directed by a governing board composed of 15 members elected by the Assembly. The enterprise will also have a Director General elected by the Assembly on the recommendation of the Council and the nomination of the Governing Board, who shall be its Chief Executive Officer and Legal Representative. The provisions of the Convention relating to the enterprise were radically affected by the 1994 Agreement. The industrialized countries had long regarded the provisions of the Convention as unworkable and particularly objected to any suggestion that they would be responsible for financing the initial operations of the enterprise. The 1994 agreement therefore effectively puts the enterprise on hold for the foreseeable future. It does this by establishing a number of conditions that must be satisfied before the enterprise may operate as an independent entity. First, it provides that the enterprise shall conduct its initial deep seabed mining operations 
through joint ventures and removes the obligations of states' parties to finance the operations of the enterprise. Second, it makes the decision to activate the enterprise subject to a decision of the Council, which may only be taken contingent upon one of two possible trigger events. These are the approval of a plan of work for exploitation by any qualified entity for any mineral resource, or an application for a joint venture with the enterprise. If joint venture operations with the enterprise accord with sound commercial principles, the Council shall issue a directive pursuant to Article 170, Paragraph 2 of the Convention for the enterprise to begin to function independently of the Secretariat. In the meantime, the limited functions of the enterprise are to be performed by the Secretariat of the Authority. These functions mostly cover such things as monitoring of trends in metal markets and evaluation of information on potential mineral resources. As we discussed in Part 3, the main function of the authority is to regulate the way in which activities in the area may be carried out by qualified entities. Activities in the area are defined in Article 1, Paragraph 3 of the Convention as all activities of exploration for and exploitation of the resources of the area. Activities in the area shall be carried out by a qualified entity in accordance with a formal written plan of work drawn up in accordance with Annex 3 and approved by the Council after review by the Legal and Technical Commission. Such a plan of work shall be in the form of a contract, which shall provide for security of tenure over the area covered by the contract. The authority shall exercise such control over activities in the area as is necessary for the purpose of securing compliance with the relevant provisions of Part 11 and the Agreement, Annex 3, and the rules, regulations, and procedures of the authority. States' parties are to assist the authority by taking all measures necessary to ensure such compliance in accordance with Article 139. The basic conditions of prospecting, exploration, and exploitation are contained in Annex 3 of the Convention, which elaborates upon the provisions of Article 153 by describing the procedures by which states state enterprises, and other entities may apply for prospecting, exploration, and exploitation in the area, the procedures for approval of plans of work for exploration and exploitation, and the basic legal and contractual conditions attached to such plans of work. The provisions of Annex 3, as modified by the agreement, are reflected in, and in many instances further modified by, the rules, regulations, and procedures adopted by the Council. So far, the Authority has adopted three sets of regulations dealing with prospecting and exploration for mineral resources in the area. The first set of regulations was adopted in 2000 and dealt with prospecting and exploration for polymetallic nodules. Regulations on prospecting and exploration for polymetallic sulfides were adopted in 2010 and for cobalt-rich crusts in 2012. The regulations on prospecting and exploration for polymetallic nodules have since been revised and updated to be consistent with the 2010 and 2012 regulations. The three sets of regulations are broadly similar in format, scope, and content, with differences primarily to reflect the different spatial and geological characteristics 
of the mineral resources they deal with. Ultimately, it is intended that the regulations would form part of a mining code, regulating all aspects of activities in the area, from prospecting through to exploitation. The regulations are designed to implement the broad provisions of Part 11 and Annex 3 of the Convention and the 1994 Agreement. They thus cover all aspects of the prospecting and exploration phases of mineral development, including the process of applying for approval of a plan of work, the procedure for consideration of the applications by the Legal and Technical Commission and the Council, and the form and content of the contract for exploration. The regulations contain an important provision which enables the Legal and Technical Commission to issue, from time to time, recommendations of a technical or administrative nature for the guidance of contractors to assist them in the implementation of the rules, regulations and procedures. The Commission regularly issues and updates such guidance, especially on technical matters, such as protocols for collection and storage of environmental data. Contractors are required to observe such recommendations as far as reasonably practicable. This contractual commitment to observe the recommendations has become an important element of the due diligence obligations of contractors, especially with regard to the need to collect environmental data and take measures for the protection of the marine environment. The regulations contain standard clauses for exploration contracts which are automatically incorporated into each contract issued by the authority. These are identical for each category of resource. Exploration contracts have a fixed and limited duration of 15 years, during which time the contractor is expected to undertake the necessary exploratory activities to prepare for exploitation. This may include testing of mining and recovery systems, as well as geological analysis of mineral deposits and environmental, technical and economic studies. A contractor may, in limited circumstances, seek an extension of a plan of work for exploration for periods of five years each. As at November 2019, 30 contracts for exploration were in force. Regulations governing the exploitation phase of seabed mining have yet to be developed. The 1982 Convention set out detailed and prescriptive policies for the conduct of commercial mining, including provisions relating to production authorizations and the financial terms of contracts. As a result of the 1994 agreement, however, those provisions of the Convention no longer apply. Instead, the agreement sets out the principles intended to guide the authority in the development of rules and regulations for commercial mining. These are contained in sections 6, 7 and 8 of the Annex to the Agreement. Together, they provide broad guidance on the policy framework within which detailed regulations are to be developed. Section 6, on production policy, emphasizes that the development of the resources of the area shall take place in accordance with sound commercial principles, and that there shall be no subsidization of activities in the area, nor that shall there be any discrimination between minerals derived from the area and from other sources. Most importantly, Section 8, Paragraph 1, on financial terms of contracts, 
lays down general principles. These include the requirement that payments to the authority shall be within the range prevailing in respect of land-based mining of the same or similar minerals, in order to avoid giving deep seabed miners an artificial competitive advantage or imposing on them a competitive disadvantage. At the same time, the system should not be complicated and should not impose major administrative costs on the authority or on contractors. At the time of recording this lecture, the Legal and Technical Commission and the Council are working to develop the regulatory framework for exploitation. No doubt the broad policy guidelines set out in the 1994 agreement will help to inform and provide a basis for this work. The last part of this lecture concerns dispute settlement. One of the distinguishing features of the law of the sea in the Convention is the integration into the regime for deep seabed mining of a compulsory system for the settlement of disputes structured to match the particularities of the regime. Whilst there is some overlap between the general provisions of the Convention relating to dispute settlement found in Part 15, the specific provisions relevant to the deep seabed mining regime are located in Section 5 of Part 11, Articles 186 to 191. Article 186 establishes the Seabed Disputes Chamber as a special chamber of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, established under Annex 6. Whilst proceedings before the Seabed Disputes Chamber are governed by the rules of the Tribunal, adopted under Annex 6, the jurisdiction of the Chamber is established under Part 11, Section 5. It is very important to note that the Seabed Disputes Chamber is in not in any way an organ of the authority, but is part of an entirely independent body, namely the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. Under Article 187, the Seabed Disputes Chamber has broad jurisdiction with respect to activities in the area, including with respect to disputes between states' parties, disputes between states' parties and the authority, disputes between parties to a contract being states' parties, the authority, or the enterprise, state enterprises, and natural or juridical persons, and disputes between the authority and a prospective contractor. In certain cases, disputes between states' parties concerning the interpretation or application of Part 11 and its related annexes may be submitted to a special chamber of the tribunal or an ad hoc chamber of the seabed disputes chamber. Disputes concerning the interpretation or application of the contract may be submitted to binding commercial arbitration, which, in default of any other agreement, shall be conducted in accordance with the UNCITRAL arbitration rules. Article 189 provides certain limitations on the jurisdiction of the Seabed Disputes Chamber with regard to decisions of the authority. The Chamber shall have no jurisdiction with regard to the exercise by the authority of its discretionary powers and shall not substitute its discretion for that of the authority. Traditionally, access to international courts and tribunals has been limited to states. The Seabed Disputes Chamber thus represents an unusual, albeit not unprecedented, exception to the traditional principle by granting access to all the various categories of entities that may be involved in deep seabed mining including states, 
state enterprises, natural or juridical persons, the enterprise, and of course, the authority itself. In line with the requirement in Article 153 that natural and juridical persons must be sponsored by one or more states' parties in order to carry out activities in the area, Article 190 of the Convention provides that if a natural or juridical person becomes a party to a dispute, referred to in Article 187, the sponsoring state must also be given notice thereof and shall have the right to participate in the proceedings. Finally, the Seabed Disputes Chamber has jurisdiction to render advisory opinions at the request of the Assembly or the Council of the Authority on legal questions arising within the scope of their activities. The jurisdiction of the Chamber in this respect is somewhat analogous to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice in relation to advisory opinions requested by the General Assembly of the United Nations. The first such advisory opinion was rendered in 2011 at the request of the Council. So, to sum up, how successful has this regime been in meeting its objectives? I think there are six points that can be made to indicate that the success of the Part 11 regime has exceeded all expectations and has, in fact, made a tremendous contribution towards the rule of law in the ocean. First, the Convention has received almost universal acceptance, with 168 ratifications, including all the major maritime powers except for the United States, as well as the EU and all its member states. Second, there have been no unilateral claims to seabed resources since entry into force. Third, all the so-called pioneer claims to deep-sea mine sites made before the entry into force of the Convention have been brought under the single regime of the Convention and the 1994 Agreement. Fourth, the Authority has demonstrated that it is an effective regulator, having adopted by consensus comprehensive exploration codes for the three main deep-sea mineral resources, including stringent provisions to prevent and minimize damage to the marine environment. Fifth, on the strength of such regulation, the Authority has attracted significant investment in deep-sea exploration in the form of 30 contracts involving 22 different states' parties. Significantly, this includes several developing countries which would not have the capacity to access the deep sea were it not for the preferential rights given to them under the Convention. And sixth, the intensive exploration work that has taken place so far under these contracts and is still taking place today has added enormously to the total sum of human knowledge of the marine environment, thus contributing to one of the other objectives of the legal regime, which is to promote and encourage marine scientific research for the benefit of all humanity. Thank you very much for listening.